Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. There were some amazing moves of God that took place across Eastern Europe following the fall of the Soviet Union back in 1991. Some of the ongoing mission works in that region of the world are a direct result of the revival that God visited upon them at that time. My guest today is missionary Zach Lefevre. Brother Lefevre has ministered among Turkish-speaking people in Bulgaria and Romania for the past 26 years. The story of how this labor commenced with missionary Ralph Cheatwood following the fall of the USSR is fascinating. And the ongoing work of the Lefevers and their fellow laborers is cause for rejoicing as they've witnessed a once despised, forgotten, oppressed people group embrace the glorious gospel of Christ. Now for the conversation with missionary Zach Lefevre on reaching the Turkish-speaking people of Eastern Europe. Brother Lefevre, for the past 26 years, you've ministered primarily to Turkish-speaking people which uh, I find interesting. It's, it's a very large, very underreached language group, but you've actually been reaching these people in Eastern Europe, interestingly enough. It's, uh, it's a really interesting story about how you came uh, to minister among these people in that region of the world. And so I was wondering if you'd start by just tracing the early efforts to reach the millet Turkish people of post-Soviet Eastern Europe. Maybe you can run down a little bit of that history. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I, th- I guess they were just ready to be reached, and they were waiting. Um, so they had been, as far as I know their history, and they, they don't have historians, um, but they were a gypsy group um, that probably came out of uh, India and moved west, and I think they came through... Turkey and then up into Europe and, and along the way I think there was always some that stayed there when they got up into Europe I think they spread out all over Europe uh, even up into England and then over to America but the ones that stayed uh, in the Ottoman Empire at that time the Ottoman Empire was Turkish the ones that stayed there adopted the Turkish culture language and religion um, and so they they kind of broke off uh, from the regular gypsy group, and they sort of became Turkish, or slowly uh, assimilated into that. Um, most of them are still looked at as being a lower class citizen, just because it's a different ethnic group. Um, and in Bulgaria now that uh, uh, now that Christian Bulgaria is uh, in control of their own country again. Turkish people, all Turkish people are minority, and Muslims are a minority, and they're looked down upon. And so then this Millet group is uh, a minority within that minority, and so they were really, um, really oppressed, just not uh, given any rights or respect at all. Um, and so they on up through communism, the Bulgarians oppressed all Turks, and they didn't want they didn't want a separate group in their country, as far as we can tell. They wanted everybody to be Bulgarian, 
and so they imposed strict laws on the Turkish people. They had to speak Bulgarian. They couldn't speak Turkish in public. They couldn't dress like Turks in public. And then eventually they had to change their names, which to them their name is is who they are. You know, the Muslims have Muslim names. Christians have Christian names. For a Muslim to take a Christian name is a, uh, it's a blasphemy to them. Sure. And so they didn't want to do that. A lot of Turkish people actually left and went to went to Turkey. Um, most of these Milet Turks did not do that. Uh, they stayed there and compromised, and they took the took the Bulgarian names. And so there's a lot of people in Turkey that have a lot of people in Bulgaria have two names. They've got a Bulgarian name and a Turkish name. Hmm. And uh, so they were. Uh, really living I'm almost living in a hostile environment through communism and when things opened up uh, in the early 90s and a missionary came in and began to preach you know with a loudspeaker publicly the word of God and for the first time in their history probably probably they heard there's a God that is concerned about you Nobody else in the world is concerned about you. There's a God, and He sent His Son for you, and He is uh, He is here to save you. He is here to help you. He's here to stand by you when nobody else will. So they were just they were just blown away, and uh, of course they were excited to receive that, and they didn't ha- they didn't offer any. Uh, they were not devoutly religious, and so they didn't have any uh, anything to hold them back. They didn't have any pride to hold them back, uh, so they were just just thrilled to hear the gospel, and so many of them got saved. So even as the Lord was preparing this people for the gospel, God was also preparing a man to take that gospel to them. Yeah. And so uh, this uh, this story, in in terms of the mission work that you're a part of, really begins with Brother Ralph Cheatwood, and uh, actually traces back to Turkey, I guess, all the way in the 70s. So uh, trace that for us as well, if you would, how the Lord directed Brother Cheatwood to Eastern Europe to minister to these Turkish-speaking people. Okay, so he went, I believe, in 1975. I think he went his first summer in Iran, and he worked there. While he was there, he got an old Azeri Turkish Bible. And the language there is Turkish, and it was an old Bible. And after that summer, I think, or that first year, he decided uh, there was a missionary there wanted him to come work. But uh, when he was coming back through Turkey, um, I think actually he was coming through Turkey, and maybe he was on the on a boat or somewhere, and there was a rainbow over Istanbul. And he just said, no, the Lord originally called me to Turkey, and this is where I need to be. So he... Uh, went to Turkey and he spent uh, from 1975 1991 16 years either in Turkey or in Germany with the Turks and during that time he devoted himself to learning the language he couldn't evangelize in Turkey you can't pass out tracts you can't preach on the street start a church that type of thing easily Um, so he devoted himself to learning the language and he learned Uh, He started with the alphabet 
and the sounds and he started from the level of like a, a toddler learning how to speak sure. and he learned how to speak correctly he didn't have an american accent and he learned the language he lived there he looked like a turk and he really he could fit in turkey and nobody would know he was a foreigner so he did that for all of those years and when bulgaria opened up he came up there and he looked like a Turkish man, and they introduced him as a brother from Istanbul. <laughs> but all the people up there, they assumed he was a Turk. <laughs> and they look at Istanbul as like their capital because they're in a minority in Bulgaria. They're Turkish people in Bulgaria. So a man coming from Istanbul is like a, he's like a hero. So he comes and he preaches in Turkish, and they're just ready to receive it, and it fits right in. And there's, uh, it's like he was he was um, immersed into that culture for all of those years. And when he went to Bulgaria, he he didn't have any culture shock. He didn't have any. He sure. was right in there with them, sure. and they accepted him immediately. There's a sense in which I guess those 16 years of labor in between Germany and Turkey among the Turk the Turks uh, was really preparatory for that work in Bulgaria and Romania because it wasn't particularly fruitful in terms of right. souls saved those right. many years that he was down in Turkey. Right, and he he said he never saw it coming. <laughs> you know, really, you know, who in the West would have said that the uh, the Soviet empire is going to break up, you know, and, and one day that everything's going to open up? Nobody saw it coming, and certainly nobody saw what God was going to do. Sure. But, uh, and that's the way it is, you know, you're, you're, you labor and you try to serve the Lord. You don't know what's going to happen sure. in the future. The Lord might open something, something up that's great and he might not. You never know. But then when you look back, you can say, oh, the Lord did know what he was doing all these Amen. years. So. Was, um, was Brother Potter, Brother Cheatwood's pastor? Not exactly pastor. No, he was, um, he was from Florida. And he went through Central Missionary Clearinghouse. Okay. And at some point, he went through the church. And so Charity Baptist Mission um, in Bristol, Tennessee, Ralph Cheatwood came up there. And he wasn't officially through the mission board. He wasn't officially through the church. But he just uh, uh, he just fit in right there. It there was, was a just a spiritual relationship and a bond yeah. there. Um, that lasted. So, so it was Brother Potter, if I'm not mistaken, that actually encouraged Brother Cheatwood to go explore the evangelistic opportunities after the fall of yeah. the uh, of the Soviet Union. Yes, he had um, at that time. You know, there was a lot of preachers that were going to Russia, and they were having crusades, and they were bringing back stories about people, a lot of people getting saved, and so there's a lot of interest back then. And so Fred Potter said, well, he had this missionary in Istanbul at that time and said, I want you to go up to Russia. And so Brother Cheatwood said, well, from Turkey, I'll have to go up through Bulgaria and go up that way. And so Brother Potter said, well, he used to know a missionary named James Stewart that traveled Central Europe and Eastern Europe before the Second World War and evangelized in all those countries and had great results uh, and then also got a lot of Bibles into those countries 
So uh, uh, Brother Potter said, well, James Stewart was in Bulgaria years ago and said, maybe you can go into Bulgaria and retrace his steps. How about so, that? Yeah, so he went up there, and, and uh, Bulgaria is as far as he got. <laughs> but eventually they did go up to Romania as well. Sure. But uh, stayed right there with the Turkish people in Bulgaria and Romania. So I heard you tell a, an interesting story about some of uh, a, a one instance of Brother Cheatwood's uh, efforts to evangelize publicly on a Muslim feast day, if I'm not mistaken, of some kind of yeah. Muslim festival, yeah. and uh, that was a that would you would you relate that? Yeah, they so every year on the Kurban Bayram, that means like the sacrifice holiday, they. Uh, every Turkish family, if they can afford it, I guess they're supposed to get either a lamb uh, or maybe a calf. Um, and normally they'll get it and they'll keep it and raise it a little bit or whatever. You can get it. Uh, but then on that holiday, they will kill it. And their tradition is to eat it, uh, kind of like the Passover, but they will eat it and they will share it with their neighbors or with poor people as a good work or whatever. So anyway, on this holiday up in Bulgaria, uh, Brother Cheatwood, they were out evangelizing, and there was a large crowd, and uh, he was preaching on the street, and they all gathered around, and he said there was about 500 people there, and he preached to them. And on that day, he preached, you don't have to kill your lambs anymore, <laughs> that the last lamb that God requires has already been slain, Amen. and he's Jesus. And God receives his blood. He's not looking for any more blood. And so the whole crowd, they loved it. Uh, he said when he got done preaching that the whole crowd got down on their knees and prayed <laughs> and asked the Lord to save them. So that was just wonderful. Yeah. One yeah. of those rare moments where God actually visited uh, some sense of revival, some a really unique evangelistic uh, move of God. Yeah, and there were all kinds of stories about about just the meetings that he was in. And Brother Cheatwood, he he wasn't a big talker, and he didn't tell us everything. <laughs> you know, he would stay gone for weeks at a time, and uh, and he didn't always tell everything that that happened and everything that went on. Uh, but they they just went from every city and town and village and preached publicly, and then from there, people would invite them back to their homes, and they would have. Uh, they would have churches started in the houses, and uh, and the Lord was just moving in those days. Amen. And it, like I said, He didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. It wasn't that that anybody sat down and said, "Let's come up with a plan on how to evangelize <laughs> sure. and how to do it." Uh, it. It just it just happened. Just yeah. the Lord did it. Amen. Yeah. And so on the heels of that great move of God there among the, the Turkish speaking people in Bulgaria, in particular. Uh, Charity Baptist Missions, uh, there, there's a team that develops around Brother Cheatwood and multiple families surrender to go and, and participate in mm -hmm. this work. And, and there's a great need for discipling believers and for uh, working with national pastors. And I guess that's where you come into this story. So how did the Lord mm -hmm. deal with your heart about, about that part of the world and that group of people? Okay, so I... I graduated from Maslin Baptist College in Maslin, Ohio in 1992 and my wife graduated in 93. I waited for her to graduate before we married and at that time I was praying about missions 
and uh, I was at a meeting, and Brother Sam Gipp talked to me, and he asked, what are, you do- what are you doing? And I said, I'm praying about missions. He said, well, you should really look into Eastern Europe. And I've been praying. You know, every time I see a missionary, uh, I pray about going to his field. Sure. You know, I prayed about all kinds of places. So after he told me, I just felt like that was the Lord directing me to Eastern Europe. And so I wrote some letters to different mission boards and different missionaries. And I didn't hear back from any of them. And it was puzzling. Why would a why would a mission board not respond to a letter from a young man saying, I'm interested in being a missionary? Except for Charity Baptist Mission, Fred Potter called me on the phone. And he was excited and wanted me to come to a camp meeting. And uh, he told me, now I was in Michigan at that time, and there's another missionary, Matt Welch, who lived in Michigan at that time. And he said, we got a missionary up in Michigan. You ought to look him up in the phone book. And I thought, just one part of Detroit, the phone book is like this thick. You know, you don't just look up Brother Matt. Right. And I thought, well, uh, I'm never going to find this guy. So I just said, sure, I'll look him up. And then like a week later or a couple weeks later, I went to a meeting. It was either a camp meeting or a missions conference at a nearby church. And I saw on their on their wall they had the missionaries they supported and i saw matt welch look at the oh here's matt welch here's this guy here's his picture i said isn't that a coincidence and then i walked in the auditorium and there was a man standing there that looked just like the picture of matt welch (laughs) (laughs) so i went up and introduced myself and uh he said i've been waiting to meet you how about that so i talked to him and he said uh, you need to take a trip to bulgaria and i said okay i'll do that and I went to Bulgaria in the spring of 1993. It was Easter at that time. And I spent a month there uh, with the missionaries. And it was a great experience. But uh, to be honest, the whole time I was there, God didn't give me a burden. He didn't speak to me. He didn't show me any. I didn't see a light. I didn't feel any emotional tug. I was just glad to be there, impressed with the work, impressed with the men that were there. There was Brother Cheatwood, and there was already four or five other families that were there um, and thought they were all great people doing great work. Um, So I came back to the States, and it was just some time later um, that the Lord just kind of confirmed in my heart that I needed to be there. And so we got married. Uh, I was single at the time. Got married later that summer in '93, and we ended up actually waiting another year and a half, and we had a baby, and uh, we went in 90, 1995. All right. Yeah. Now you had some you had some issues early on getting into and staying in Bulgaria, didn't you? You had some visa uh, issues that. Yeah. Uh, so put the you missionaries in for a little while. Yeah, the missionaries in Bulgaria. The government changed. I think maybe they had elections, and they, um, <clears throat> even though that uh, democracy had come into Bulgaria and all those countries over there, that doesn't mean that immediately all the politicians are democratic. You know, <laughs> sure. they're still power hungry. So around 1994, 95, there was a different group that got in, 
and they didn't want missionaries there and so they stopped giving visas so the missionaries in Bulgaria couldn't live there anymore they had to go somewhere so the Romanian border was just a couple hours north so they moved up there and then my family we went and joined them in the spring of 95 in Romania and uh, that ended up again being of the Lord because there was Turkish people up there okay and if the government had not stopped giving those visas none of the missionaries would ever cross the border and go into Romania and check on it (laughs) but the Lord wanted to get those people up there saved so he moved the missionaries up there Sometimes those uh, seeming hiccups and obstacles end up being opportunities, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you can't see it coming. Sure. You know, you think, uh, <clears throat> looks like maybe this ministry is coming to an end, you know, maybe. <laughs> but the Lord. And then for those, uh, so the missionaries, <clears throat> we stayed in Romania for 10 years. But every month, every month, at least one missionary went down into Bulgaria as a tourist, you could get 30 days. Sure. Every month for 10 years, we had a missionary come to Bulgaria. And uh, you're not allowed to be a tourist every month, you know. But uh, the border guards, they don't know what's, they don't know the law. They don't pay attention to it. And so finally, there was a time when at the border, they looked at the missionary's passport and said, wait a minute, you're not a tourist coming in here every other month, you know. You're <laughs> So they said, you can't do this. And I think one of us, they, they turned, turned them back and said, no, you can't come into Bulgaria. And at that time, of course, the Bulgarian government had changed, and there was uh, an attorney in Sofia that, could, that was saved, and he began to get visas for missionaries to come into Bulgaria. And so at that time, when the, the border guard said, no, you're not allowed to do this, then just the Lord opened the door for us to go ahead and get a visa to come in and live there. Amen. So several of the missionary families moved to Bulgaria. Two families, I think, stayed in Romania, and they're still there now. So when you entered the, when, when you entered the region in 95, that's still on the heels of, of uh, many, many uh, converts and God doing, a, God doing a great work there and among those people. So mm-hmm. what was the work like when it commenced for you personally when you got started in 95? Well, we kind of eased into it slowly. We certainly had to learn the language first. Um, the first, re- and we had, uh, so I think it was December, that Brother Cheatwood brought two of the preachers from Bulgaria up to Romania. And the missionaries, I think, had all spring and summer to get settled into the new country, learn the language a little bit. Um, and, and that is wisdom, because a lot of times a missionary wants to start a ministry as soon as he gets off the plane. Sure. But Brother Cheatwood said, you all study the language and just get settled into the country. And so I think that it was about... December that he brought two preachers up from Bulgaria and their wives and started some meetings uh, in the city of Constanza where we lived and uh, those meetings were great again it was and I don't know if the missionaries went to the first meetings it might have been just those national pastors and they went to the Turkish neighborhoods and the Turkish parts of town and uh their, their way of doing things was to go into a public place and start singing some hymns. 
and that gets attention and a crowd comes and from there they'll preach and normally whoever hears the preaching and is affected by it will invite them back to their house for further uh, feed them a meal you know but really further uh, interest and so the meeting the the work got started like that then the missionaries began to go um, probably the first time that I went we went to a city 20 miles away a couple missionaries a couple Turkish preachers and their wives and big Turkish section uh, on a street corner we just uh, all of us stood there with our hymn books and started singing and just in 10 minutes there was a hundred maybe 200 people gathered around us <laughs> there were people climbing trees there were people on housetops just watching watching us there sing and then those men preached and uh after that, we went to somebody's home or a couple homes and had special prayer for people. So it really was, I mean, if you, if you uh, love missions or anything like that, it was just, it was just phenomenal, you know, to, to be a part of that. So once that really kicks off, you're, you're about five days a week just beating the bushes with these national pastors yeah. going and doing evangelism and dealing with people. Yeah. What a joy. Yeah, we... Uh, they were new, and so we helped train them, and they trained us Amen. as well. You yes. know, they taught us the language. They taught us, do this, don't do this. Um, and there was one church even that got started. I can't remember where it was. Well, it was in Schumann, okay. So they had a meeting there, and uh, from the meeting, there was a lady said, come to my house and please pray for my husband. There was a national pastor that time maybe just started preaching but it just a new new convert really and one missionary they went to this lady's home to pray for her husband and uh, he had uh, he'd gotten a fight with somebody and he'd stabbed a man and killed him and uh, it wasn't I think the man was drunk and attacked him and in the fight he got the knife away from the guy and he ended up stabbing him in the leg but it was a uh, artery or whatever and the man ended up dying and he's a turk the man he killed was bulgarian and so basically the details of the case don't matter to anybody he's automatically guilty so she comes and gets these preachers to pray for him and the turk is a new convert he doesn't know the bible he doesn't know much about what to do the missionary doesn't hardly know the language so the two of them together they understood the situation they had prayer um the lady gave her heart to the lord the man did as well the family eventually the man was released he didn't go to jail the lord answered their prayers and a church was started in her house amen from a new convert preacher (laughs) that didn't know what he was doing and a missionary didn't hardly know he was doing but the lord Used two two men like that that had their weaknesses, but together, the Lord was there. Sure. And so the church got started. I think sometimes in missions, we we as American missionaries, we think, well, we're going to go over there and we're going to we're going to we're going to teach these people and we might be straightening some people out. But there's a there's a reciprocal relationship there, isn't it? There's a, it's yeah. really a partnership, and and the American missionaries got as much to learn as the uh, as yeah. the national convert. Yeah. 
there's you know we know american culture because we grew up here sure but foreign cultures um they're foreign to us you know so it takes us time to learn um so there's a there's a learning period um that a new missionary you know like i say wants to he wants to get people saved his first week you know and write a letter home and look we got a church started um but really a new missionary doesn't know what's going on you know <laughs> sure. he doesn't know what's it takes time to live there and to learn the people and to learn the language well yeah. speaking of a foreign culture and church planting i guess church planting doesn't look precisely the same in that part of the world as we might have in mind uh, state sides, not necessarily going out and getting a piece of ground, erecting a building, mm. uh, putting up a sign, that kind of thing. So, describe for us um, what what the what the local church looks like there, the churches that have been established, and uh, how they go about meeting and how they're organized. Mm-hmm. Well, it uh, it sort of worked itself out as we would go to these to the homes of people. Okay, you can preach on the street. But a church needs to be in one location. Sure. So we would go to homes of people, and uh, as many people as could fit in would come into the room, and they sit on the floor. Um, a lot of the Turkish people up there at that time, um, they had they would live in one room in the house. They would have a bed they would make as a day bed in the day. They would sit on it, night sleep on it, a cook stove uh, on one wall. Um, and then they would eat their meals right there um, on the floor. They would have a little table. They've got a table that's about a foot high, and it's round. And they would wheel it in at mealtime, set the table, eat on the floor, just like they did at the Last Supper, or, sure. and then take it back out. That's their The one room is their bedroom, living room, kitchen, dining room. Um, so at the meetings, they would move any furniture out of the way that was easy, to make as much floor space available. And uh, that's how the prayer meetings got started and preaching got started in that uh, in that forum. Otherwise, you know, we would have done the exact same thing. We would have tried to rent a storefront, put a sign up. Um, but as those things happen, we just kind of went with it like that. Um, their hymns sound different. They have different melodies. And they don't always work with the piano or the guitar. And so we sing a cappella. Um, there are some Turkish instruments that, that work well, but we don't have musicians. And a lot of times if you get a musician doesn't hardly know what he's doing, he can do more harm than good. <laughs> sure. So we just sing a cappella. And, uh, and it works great. Uh, a lot of times the people sit on the floor and... Uh, we don't have we don't have the programs. We don't have Sunday school. We don't have children's church. Whoever can come is welcome. Um, a lot of times they'll run the children out because children misbehave. So it's mostly adults that come, and the older people, and more women than men. Normally, it takes the men a while to get saved. Sure. Uh, they've got pride. Um, so the typically the house church that we have in a village will be in somebody's house a uh, group of people come sit on the floor or if they if they do have chairs or couches you know they do that um, and we uh, we don't 
we don't like to eat a meal or drink coffee. We like to have one room that's separate for church. Even though it's a house church, we want one room that's set aside for church. Sure. And we don't put a TV in there. We ask them just use it only for a meeting for church if you can. And so uh, the people will gather. We'll sing. Sometimes let the people sing as long as they want to. It might be an hour. Sometimes it might be longer than that. Um, but we'll sing a lot, and we give an opportunity for testimonies. Sometimes there's a lot of testimonies. Uh, and then we'll preach. And then after the preaching, we normally ask if anybody has a prayer request. And it might be sickness, it might be spiritual, anything. And then we all pray together, and we'll pray for any special prayer request. So pretty basic church, just we meet, sing, pray, preach, um, and that's what we call church. It sounds beautiful because it's uh, sounds like it's pretty. It's rather primitive. It's a, it's it's absent some of the trappings that that yeah. seem to prop yeah. up the the Western church and, and yeah. a certain measure of religiosity yeah. here that is not really essential to to the spiritual work of the of the assembly. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've had people that come to visit, and they're and and they like the way we do church, and they say, "Wow." You all didn't have any announcements. <laughs> you all didn't have anything to the kind of wasted time. <laughs> you all just had had church. So the 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 fact that this is um, that these are really house churches, I guess that that format for meeting perhaps has made possible the multi uh, a, a more rapid multiplication of churches in a in a manner of speaking because you're not constantly seeking property yeah, and yeah. trying to put up buildings and so forth and there's quite a number of these house churches that have been established over the years so what is the yeah. over the years what is the i mean are there do you try to do you try to establish uh these house church one of these house churches in each of these villages essentially or how does that work well, yeah, that's our goal, you know, is to have a church in every community. Um, but not every community accepts the gospel. Not every sure. community. Uh, it doesn't work out the way that uh, the way that we plan. We try as much as we can not to plan to see what the <laughs> Lord does. Yeah. Um, but uh, like you say, it is it's cheaper. You don't have to build a building, purchase property. If there's somebody there that's solid, like Lydia that says, uh, if you judge me faithful, come to my house. If there is somebody that wants church and they want they want to have us, then it works out great. Sometimes we go to a place and there's nobody there that wants to have church in their house. So if you don't have if you don't have that, you can't really do it. You know, you can't have church in somebody's house if they're half hearted. Right. Or if there's a lady that's saved, but her husband is a drunk and he's going to fight about it, you know, you can't do that. But when there's a place that, <clears throat> where there's a family or a solid, uh, a solid person that wants church, you know, the Lord told the disciples, when you go into a village, ask in the village who is worthy. Go to that house, stay, stay in that house. You know, say the peace of the Lord be on this house, and if they accept you and receive you, stay in that house. Uh, so that's kind of like what we try to do is if there's somebody who's a decent, solid person, good name in the community, have church in their house and stay there. Uh, and if you don't have that, well, you can't have a church, really. Right. You know, it just doesn't work out. And we've had we've been to a lot of places, a lot of homes where people got saved, 
people were sick. We prayed for them. They got better. People got saved. But it just didn't develop into a church. It sure. was just a prayer meeting for a few weeks. Now, it was. Um, it's pretty clear that you like to... Uh talking about some of the some of the good men that the Lord's allowed you to work with over the years some some faithful national preachers that have really done the work well and in some cases I guess these men are serving in multiple house churches almost like a circuit ministry yeah. and itinerant yeah. type of, of pastoral charge yeah. um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of those national men that you've worked with that have been faithful yeah so traditionally what has happened? is in this work there have been men who volunteer to preach and we've seen many different men say I want to be a preacher and some of them uh, the Lord wants them to preach some of them just want to be the man standing up in front of the crowd sure Um, and so generally we've told them okay if you want to be a preacher go ahead and preach start a church in your house (laughs) amen and if people come and get saved, well, then we think, okay, it looks like God's using this man. But if he can't have a church in his own house, probably the Lord's not called him. Um, so we've had uh, several men that have done that, and they have started meetings in their own home. And then they get a burden to go to the next village. And at the beginning, especially back in the early 90s, they didn't have a lot of money. Um some of them would walk to the next village. The one man, Brother Demir, he lives in, in town, and so he would go to the bus station, get the bus that goes to whichever village, and the bus leaves 6 in the morning, 8 in the morning, something like that. So he would have he would go to these villages, take the bus. It only cost, might have been free for him, I don't know, or it might have cost a quarter, something like that. He would get to the village and have church 8 o'clock in the morning or earlier, First thing in the morning, you know, he'd have church, you know, and he said these people are coming. They hadn't had their coffee yet. They're kind of rubbing their eyes. And he said, but the good thing is uh, having church that early, people don't fall asleep. He said <laughs> they're awake. So he would have church first thing in the morning, and then he would just have to wait for whatever time the bus comes around again. He'd have to get on the bus and go. So the men that did that and began to go to the nearby villages um, we could see, okay, God has his hand on this man, and he's helping him in this village, and this village, and this village. And so Brother Cheatwood eventually would help these men by giving them money to travel, bus money, gas money, whatever. Um, and the one man, Brother Demir, uh, so Brother Cheatwood gives the missionary, Nathan Reed, some money. Give this to Pastor Demir. Tell him this is for him to travel this week to the villages. So the young missionary goes and says, here, here's some money from Brother Ralph. He wants you to take this, go to the villages this week and preach. That young preacher says, I don't preach for money. I don't want his money. I I, I don't give it back to him. I don't want it. So the young missionary says, okay, sorry. He takes the money back the next day to Brother Cheatwood, says he didn't want the money. Brother Cheatwood, he he was a man of God, and he had authority in his voice. He tells young missionary, you take that money and give it to him. <laughs> Basically, don't come, don't take no for an answer, don't come back. So the young missionary goes back out there the next day, says, look, Brother Ralph wants you to take this money, use it to travel. You're preaching, you need money to travel. 
He wants to give you this money. Young preacher says, no, I don't want that money. So they talk a little while in fellowship. Finally, when the preacher's not looking, missionary puts the money down and runs away. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty refreshing, though. Yeah. Uh, a young preacher like that that uh, is understands that he's called of God. He's, he's not for hire. Yeah. So the ones, the ones that are anxious to get money... God's not using them. The ones <laughs> right. God's using are saying, no, I'm too embarrassed to take money. I don't want money. But uh, eventually, eventually that man realized, okay, this is the Lord helping me. I do need money to get to villages. And so they could buy cars, old uh, Moscovich cars, Ladas, old cars. They were cheap back in those days, $500 or something. So you could get a car... And these preachers are already going, and they're they're walking. They're using a donkey. They're using a bicycle. They are, they're already going. So Brother Cheatwood ended up buying cheap cars for each of these guys and helping them with gas, so that they could get to these villages. And when they got that, a uh, little bit of help for transportation, then they went to twice as many villages. Amen. And it just blessed, and it just worked out like that. Um, and so then over the years, those cars break down and we're able to get better cars for them. Um, but that's the main thing, is that these men are kind of like a circuit rider where the, every week they have the villages that they go to and they travel. That's their main expense is transportation. Gasoline is over $5 a, a gallon. And so that's the main thing that we help them with is transportation to their meetings. Now, you've been involved in some other significant ministry efforts over the years, including some, some humanitarian outreach to try to assist the, the churches you've described. Um, this group of people in Bulgarian society as sort of a, a lower rung on the social ladder, and many of them are, are very poor. So what are some of the ways that the Lord's led you to minister to the, the, the physical needs of these people that you're among? Well... First of all, prayer. Especially back in those days, the doctors in those countries didn't have the training. The hospitals didn't have the uh, equipment. They didn't have the medicine. Uh, and so it was very difficult for people to get any medical help. And that was a big part of the ministry, was praying for sick people. And we saw the Lord heal a lot of people. Wow. You know, we go Amen. and pray. Form, they look like they're on their deathbed. We come back a week later and they're outside working. You know, we've seen a lot of people that just got healed. Um, you know, we didn't have healing services. We don't believe in that kind of stuff. Sure. But uh, we saw the Lord answer a lot of prayers. Amen. So that was the first thing. But then um, as, as we're in these poor communities, there's so many people that are hungry, so many children... Um, that are hungry that uh, and people are always asking for help that we just couldn't we couldn't uh, we couldn't just say be warm and be filled God bless you we'll be back next week um, really where it started was there was a village outside of Varna it was up on a hill there was a bad snowstorm about 1993-94 bad snowstorm Roads all closed. They didn't have the snow moving equipment, road equipment. So after about four days, 
one of the missionaries had a four-wheel drive. They said, let's get out and go somewhere. So they take the national pastor. They go. He says, I know this village. It's really bad. It's like the worst village in the whole area. I mean, uh, violent. All the thieves are there. They said even the police didn't go there. Just a bad reputation. So the, so the national preacher says, I know a place we can go. You know, he wants to go there. <laughs> so they get out, and they get to this place, this village, and they start preaching. People come out. But somebody says, hey, y'all are talking about God. Can God feed us? They said, because the roads have been closed for four days. There's not been any bread trucks in here to bring fresh bread for four days. And they said, we haven't eaten anything in four days. Wow. So the missionary said, yes, God can feed you. Just wait a minute. They went, they drove, and they had a four-wheel drive, and not everybody had that. They drove back to the city, bought as much bread as they could, and it was, I mean, big, two pounds of bread, two pounds in a loaf is a kilogram of bread. And in those days, it might have been a dime, 50 cents, something like that. So they bought all the bread they could from all the bakeries, fresh bread, and they drove back up there, and they gave out a loaf of bread to everybody. And the people, they were hungry. They began to eat the bread immediately. They didn't take it home and make a sandwich. They just started eating immediately. Everybody ate the bread and got all the bread passed out. And the people said, okay, now we're ready to listen. Wow. Now tell us about the Lord. <laughs> so that's what really got started feeding people. Um, and uh, we, we've always done things. We've always bought socks, blankets, coats. One of the missionaries every year passes out coats to children. Uh, he gets used coats over there, secondhand coats, and and goes to each of the churches and passes those out. Um, flour, everybody makes their own. Everybody bakes bread at home. You can get sliced bread in the store, and a lot of times they do, but still, you know, homemade bread is what they still like to do. And so flour was pretty cheap. We started buying flour and giving it to all the church members. Um, and now it's grown to where we give uh, we don't want to say we love you, you know, here's two pounds of flour. Um, Brother Cheap would want to give them more than they could carry. You know, he said the Lord blesses us. We want, to, we want to give them more than they can handle. And so 50 kilograms of flour is 100 pounds, 110 pounds, and then five liters of oil. And that'll feed, that'll feed a family for a couple weeks, a month, whatever, depending on how they do it. Um, so we've been doing that for years. Um, each family, not every church member, but each family, we like to give them enough flour to feed them in the winter time when they don't have the work. Um, and then there were so many children that uh, we began to feed the children back in about maybe 2000, somewhere in there. Um, and groceries were very inexpensive. So we could get beans and potatoes and cabbage and oil and the basic groceries and that we would give it to somebody in the church a lady who would volunteer to do it and uh, we didn't pay her anything just said here's the groceries if you want to feed the children in your area go ahead and then you and your family make sure that you eat from this sure. so she's glad to do it now her family's got food every day and then we would have children come 20 30 40 
there was one place where they were feeding 100 children a day. Hmm. And it was it was a full-time job to get up early, do all the cooking, um, clean up afterwards. Uh, but in those days, there was no work in Bulgaria, no money, no food, very difficult. Since then, Europe, uh, Bulgaria's entered the European Union. A lot of people have gone to Western Europe, and they've got jobs now. So things have changed, but back then we did fed a lot of children. We were feeding a couple hundred children every day. Wow! In different places, yeah. There was an orphan work connected with the with the ministry at one time. Yes, is, is that right? Is that still ongoing? Yes. Huh. So, what year would it have been? Two thousand and two, maybe. Um, up in Romania, um, Brother Cheatwood said just said one and we always had a heart for children always had a heart for babies because there's so many that are in terrible living conditions and always wanted to help um but wanted to know wanted to know that god was in it and it it was more than just because there's humanitarian aid there's the red cross there's all kind of ministries or even non-religious uh humanitarian aid places that can do things but we wanted to make sure that the Lord was in it. And so at the right time, um, Brother Cheatwood said, we need to start a children's home. And I think it was probably 2002. And uh, a family, one of the missionary families said, okay, we'll, we'll help in this work. We'll, we'll do this. We'll give our, this will be our part in the ministry. And within a couple weeks or a couple months, there were babies who would not have been aborted, but they would have been left at the hospital. Mm. Back in those days, what a lot of poor people would do is they would go into the hospital, have a baby, and then sneak out and just leave the baby there. So orphanages were overrun. But uh, we wanted uh, we wanted to raise these children and not adopt them out. We wanted to raise them. Because there's other orphanages that will take children, and then they want to get this child either international adoption or to a family. But we said we just want to raise these children for the Lord. And so um, I think originally there were eight babies, seven. One was maybe a couple years old. Um, Since then there's been some more, three or four more that's come in, maybe five or six more that's come in. Those original ones now are 18. They have graduated high school. There's one or two of them that's married. And so the Lord's... uh, let the missionaries do that. Now we moved away. I never was. I'm a preacher, you know. I'm not a. I don't work in a. I'm, I'm not cut out for a children's home, right? <laughs> sure. But the ones that uh, that did that work, they've been faithful and they've raised these children. They've done a good job. They've been with them, and uh, they've raised these children. There's some more that are younger right now. Um, but that was a blessing. At least you know we couldn't save every every child, but. The ones that grew up in the home there, each one of them has been saved. Amen. So we appreciate that. And these various projects, you've seen the Lord provide for these things as well yeah. over the years sometimes in miraculous fashion. Just what what's needed seems to come in. Yeah. And uh, I don't think any of us have a whole lot of faith. <laughs> when we see something's going to be really expensive, we don't know what to do. You know, we're just like anyone else. We say... Well, it probably won't, can't get done, but we just pray, and uh, and the Lord takes care of things, you know. When they needed to build a children's home, 
Um, just the Lord sent the money in, and and the churches in America, I mean, have been great. Just unbelievable. People yeah. that want to help, people that want to help in the ministry. Um, if it weren't for the churches sending over what they did, you know, we couldn't do anything. You know, we, we wouldn't have the means to do to do this work and do it on the scale uh, that we have. But uh, the Lord sends in, no matter what is needed, that's how much He sends in. <laughs> you know, if it's $100 or if it's $10,000 or $100,000, He sends it in somehow. Amen. He knows yeah. what the need is. Yeah. He's yeah. got the resources to take care of it. Yeah. Another really big project over the years for Brother Cheatwood and for his co-laborers uh, that I wanted to ask you about was the Bible Project. So this goes back to, I guess, around 1980 when Brother Cheatwood was still in uh, Istanbul, I mm-hmm. guess, at that time, or, mm-hmm. or serving in Turkey. He saw the need for a, uh, a pure Turkish Bible mm-hmm. and uh, labored for many years in that. So if you don't mind, take us back to, to his burden about about the Bible Project and then how that has progressed over the years. Okay, so he started, it was about 1980, he was at a meeting where some Turkish believers and missionaries decided that they needed a good translation, a new translation. And they were talking about which English Bible to use for that translation. And somebody mentioned the King James Bible and they said, absolutely not. So they looked at NIV, RSV, whatever other translations. Well, Brother Cheatwood, um, you know, people like you and I, we love the King James Bible. For somebody just to throw it out the window like that, he said, uh, well, if they're not going to do it, then I will. <laughs> and so he began to work on the translation and studied more Greek and had you know had to study English, study Turkish, and he began to translate. Um, he first, I think, he, I think he said, "Lord, where do you want me to do this work?" And he wanted to do it in Philadelphia, which is in Turkey, because he said that the, the what's it saying? Revelation. They've yeah. kept your word. Kept my word. So he said, you want me to, and he's in Turkey, he said, you want me to go there and do it? And the Lord said, no. Um, and he, at that time, uh, he came back to the States, and he came back to the mission board in Bristol, Tennessee. And uh, they helped him. They bought him a computer. And back in those days, a personal computer was was something else, you know. Had a monitor about this big and had, the, had a green screen on it, you know, and a flashing cursor and that kind of thing. But... Uh, before then, okay, he said, I need, he starts working, trying to figure out how to do this, this big project. He was in Germany, he said, and the Lord spoke to him and said, I've got a Bible for you. And he said he realized there's probably a good translation in Turkish, but where is it? So he said, I'm going to go to Turkey and I'm going to find it. There's another man, I think from Germany, that said he wanted to go visit eastern Turkey. Brother Cheatwood, you've been to Turkey, you know how to get around, so let's travel together. So he went to Istanbul, to the Bible Society that's there, 
and uh, he said, I'm looking for an old translation in Turkish. And they said, we don't ever get anything like that in here. All we have is for sale. The, the Bible that they had was from 1941. It was a revised version, and that's what they had for sale. And they said, we don't ever get anything like that. So he said, well, I'm driving to eastern Turkey. I'll be back in a couple weeks. So he went to eastern Turkey, came back in a couple weeks, came in and said, uh, do you have any Bibles? And the man said, you know, the strangest thing, the day after you left, a man brought in an old Bible. <laughs> it's 150 years old and said uh, he wanted to sell this Bible to us, but it was too expensive. So sorry, you probably won't like it. He said, well, let's call the man. The man came in, showed him the Bible, uh, and I've actually seen this Bible. And it was an old Turkish Bible. Um, it's done in the old Turkish script, which is like Arabic. It reads from right to left. It was, I think, from 1886. And uh, Brother uh, Ralph said that he began to check First John 5, 7. He wanted to see what kind of Bible, what kind of text this came from. And he said all the verses were there. Amen. And he said he realized this is what I need. And so uh, he said, how much do you want for it? And the man said like the Turkish equivalent of $20. <laughs> you know, and that's what the man said. He, he wants too much money for it. And Brother Ralph said, I'd have given him $2,000, sure. you know, but he uh, he bought it. And then later he got another translation that was from 1827, and these are all done um, from a good Greek text, and they read like the King James. And so he worked on that. Um, the entire New Testament, he had one page of paper for every verse. He had English, Greek, three different Turkish texts, and then the modern Turkish text, and then he put his translation at the bottom. And he worked on that, the entire New Testament, for 30 years. Um, and he had other helpers, other men in Istanbul, uh, the national pastors in Bulgaria and Romania, the other missionaries, I helped a lot. I went through, I checked it English against the Turkish word for word several times. Um, and so we now have a New Testament that is right where he wanted it to be. Um, it, it, it lines up with the King James Bible. Everything that's in the King James is in the Turkish it's certainly not the King James Bible, but it's a good Bible. Yeah, amen. And so he worked on the Old Testament as well. Um, but then last year, during the COVID year, when we couldn't go to church, I worked on the Bible every day. Amen. And I went through the entire Bible, Old Testament, English and Turkish, read every verse, every line, every word, went through it, made some changes. So we've been using the New Testament. We print them ourselves, bind them ourselves. We've been using the New Testament for several years. Now we want to put the Old Testament and New Testament together and print them and have a Bible for each family that's been, that, that comes to church. Um, a lot of the people can't read, but their children can read, somebody can read, and we just want every family to have a family Bible. Amen. So that's what we're looking to do. And you're pretty close to realizing that goal, I guess. Yes, we stage. have it. We've got it all put together, but again, we want uh, we want as many proofreaders as we can find to read it, and uh, anything uh, 
I'm, I'm sure there, there'll be errors in it. You know, there was errors in the first King James the printing, printing, yes. printing, printing errors, right. not translation errors. Right. And we're going to take at least a year to have everybody we can proofread it. And then um, Victory Baptist Press, Brother Fuller has said that they want to help us with this. Amen. And so we are looking at printing just a couple thousand Bibles, um, maybe not 10,000 or 20,000. We're not going to pass them out on the street. We've got Gospels of John that we do that with. Um, but whole Bibles that are going to be something that's going to last and that every family can can Amen. have and use. So Very exciting. Yeah. Now uh, there was there was another thing that came up in your presentation that I was that I was uh, curious about. Uh, in addition to the Bible printing that you've done in the country, um, you've also been involved in uh, printing Turkish hymnals. I was interested to hear how the Lord has used that evangelistically. Uh, those hymn books. How did that? How does that work among the people? That that that's been one of the things that the Lord's used to evangelize. That's been strange. You know, that is something that that you're really not taught a lot about missions um, in the states, but it has turned out to be the greatest blessing. Um, and Brother Cheatwood said one of the best things that he ever did was he decided to use the hymns that are written by those people rather than the American hymns. Okay, like we want to have Amazing Grace translated into Turkish and we want to sing it, and we do. And the people over there like it, but their melodies are so different than ours. You know, they're they're from Turkey. They're not from England or Germany uh, or America. And so their music is so different. So when some of these people began to get saved, they would write little songs they would write little hymns and they were basic um one of the first ones and we still sing it um a real basic song it says something like uh you are my child you are my lamb which is something that mothers will tell their children you're my lamb you're my little baby you know mm-hmm. but it's god speaking you're my child i see you i love you come to my house Pray, I'll answer your prayers. Very basic uh, poetry. Um, but the Lord began to use it. So they would say, okay, Brother Ralph, we've got a new hymn here. Can we sing this? And so he said, yeah, let's sing this one. And he said, when we would sing the translated American song, everybody just sat there and said, that's good. When we sang the song written by the Turk, everybody cried. Wow. And said, praise the Lord, that's good. And so he said, I decided early on, let's use these hymns that these people are writing. And uh, they just get into the heart of the people over there. To Americans, if, we would, if, if you would hear the Turkish melodies and the Turkish songs, you would say, man, that is strange. <laughs> but when they hear our music, they say, that is really strange. Sure. But the Lord has blessed that. And now we have over 200 hymns, 250 hymns we have in our book now. A couple of them, there's Amazing Grace, there's What a Friend We Have in Jesus, but for the most part they are Turkish, written by the people there, and so we have uh, printed those and given them out. Uh, the first, One of the first ones that we had was uh, 101 hymns and the Gospel of John. Had thousands of those printed, passed them out all over Bulgaria. People wow. loved them. 
to this day, there's some people that still have those, and it's been 25 years. Wow. Um, and they just went all over, and the people love them. And, and we've had people that get saved just by reading the hymn book. Amazing. Um, you know, we've had people. There was a girl. There's a village we went to. Lady loved us, had church in her house. Her granddaughter lived there. She hated us, and she would say things like, you don't have to come here. We don't. Um, and just a hard, hard case. Uh, and we just prayed, you know, and prayed for her. Well, one week, um, we show up for church. Her grandmother isn't there. She's busy doing something or in the hospital, maybe. So this granddaughter that hates us, she's there. But their culture is she has to show us hospitality. Mm. So she invites us in, and we sing some hymns. And she said, can we sing number 27? And I thought, what in the world? How do you know what... So we said, yes, 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 we can sing it. So we sang it, and maybe after church, uh, I said, what made you pick number 27? She said, well, the other night I was bored, and I got the hymn book out and started reading it, and said, I just love that hymn number 27. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, just the Lord has used it. Amen. And and reading a simple poem is a whole lot easier than reading a gospel track. If you're if you've only been to the second grade, you know, sure. So the Lord has used that, that and we still bring them. Yeah, Amen. Yeah. Well, it yeah. sure sounds like the the Lord has not only done a great work among those people, but He continues to do a great work, and yeah. it's uh, it's been a blessing yeah. hearing about it. So, Brother Lefevre, I really appreciate your labor there among those folks, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to to talk with us about it on the program today. All right. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope everybody listens to it. Praises the Lord. And I trust you have rejoiced to hear of the fruit that has abounded there in Bulgaria among the Milyet Turkish people. There are so many helpful and interesting takeaways from the conversation today relating to language, culture, and training men. But hearing such a testimony makes me wonder what untapped niche is out there, what long-neglected people or ripened field of labor might be awaiting the sensitive servant of God to follow the Spirit's leading into a mighty modern-day missionary movement. I don't doubt that it's out there. May we be attentive to the Lord's leadership to be wherever He may want us to be. Thanks again for tuning in today. You can subscribe to this program on a multitude of podcasting apps, and you can help to extend the program's reach by sharing it with others or rating and reviewing the program wherever you may be listening. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.